Kale Clark here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. Mention offer code Relevant Radio and get a free phone. Don't delay. CharityMobile.com. That's CharityMobile.com. Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. In the last episode of this series, we talked about uh, the line in the prayer, the petition in the prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we had a good discussion about that, but I wanted to tack on something I think is really important. There's actually a liturgical element to this as well. And Scott Hahn talks about this in his book, Understanding Our Father. And he kind of notes that the petition to give us this day our daily bread is immediately followed by forgive us our trespasses. And the two are really linked. The two are linked because in the Eucharist, we, we talked about how the Eucharist is, in a sense, that epi, epiusios, that, that supernatural, super substantial bread. That has the ability to forgive sins as well, especially our venial sins. And the church teaches this very, very clearly. Here's the catechism here on this. This is catechism paragraph 1394. It says, as bodily nourishment restores lost strength. So the Eucharist strengthens our charity, which tends to be weakened in daily life. And this living charity wipes away venial sins. By giving himself to us, Christ revives our love and enables us to break our disordered attachments to creatures and to root ourselves in him. Since Christ died for us out of love, when we celebrate the memorial of his death at the moment of sacrifice, we ask that love may be granted to us by the coming of the Holy Spirit. We humbly pray that in the strength of this love by which Christ willed to die for us, we, by receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, may be able to consider the world as crucified for us and to be ourselves as crucified to the world. Having received the gift of love, let us die to sin and live for God. That's a beautiful Beautiful paragraph in the Catechism, paragraph 1394. And of course, uh, St. Paul is referenced there that I consider myself crucified to the world and the world crucified to me. And this, this idea that the Eucharist strengthens our charity, strengthens our love, and it wipes away venial sins, which obviously wound that love. It doesn't necessarily break the relationship. And I always kind of use this analogy when talking about mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sins, and, and it comes really from that French word for death, mort, mort, M-O-R-T, but it's, it's pronounced more. That kills the relationship. Uh, if you look at your relationship with God as a marriage, mortal sin is like a divorce. It ends the relationship. But venial sin is almost like having a fight with your spouse, you know, or, you've done something wrong to upset your spouse, something you ought not to have done. You're still married, there's still a relationship, but there's a there's kind of a cooling off period, isn't there? Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so we've got to fix that. We've got to, we've got to strengthen that love. Uh, 
that gets weakened in daily life because of our, our faults and our foibles, and indeed our, our venial sins. And yes, they're not as grave as mortal sins, but it doesn't mean that they don't cause damage. St. Augustine used to say, if your sins don't give you pause because of their weight, you know, because of their gravity, you know, we call them grave sins as well, mortal sins, by their sheer number may they give you pause. And he talked about how you can be killed by a lion if you're thrown into the Colosseum, the gladiator fights, a lion can tear you to shreds. It's like a mortal sin, that one bite, you know. But you can also be thrown into a pit with millions of gnats, little tiny creatures, and they may not be that strong individually, but by their sheer number, they, they can do you in as well over time. And that's kind of what our venial sins can do to us. And so we, we ought not to take that lightly. And that's one of the great graces of receiving our Eucharistic Lord, that venial sins are wiped away by reception of Holy Communion. It, it's an incredible thing to think about. I actually remember having an argument with a priest friend of mine, and unfortunately he, he passed away a few years ago. May he rest in peace. But we were arguing about whether or not mortal sins, mortal sins, can be forgiven by the Eucharist. And the answer is, you know, technically it's yes. It's, it's yes, of, of course, that, that is the case, because the Eucharist is Christ. So he can forgive any sin. And sometimes you hear about, some people will say, well, and the church does teach this, this, this idea of an, making an act of perfect contrition. You know, if you were to make an act of perfect contrition, let's say you, you're, you're guilty of a mortal sin, you need to go to confession. This idea of, oh, you could make an act of perfect contrition and receive the Eucharist. But here's the deal. How do you know if you've made an act of perfect contrition? You know, I, I, I feel like our motives on this side of the, the eternal curtain are always a little bit mixed, right? We, I mean, we want to obviously have contrition out of pure love for God. Uh, we're sorry for our sins. It would be ideal to make this act of perfect contrition, but uh, very often our motives are mixed. It's fear of punishment. This isn't necessarily a bad motivation either. It can get us to the right place. But obviously the church has a methodology in place for this eventuality. If you do find yourself in a state of mortal sin, you've got to go to confession first, receive sacramental absolution, and then return to the Eucharistic table. Now, by the way, just, just to go over the three conditions that need to be met before you can even say that you're guilty of a mortal sin. Number one, it has to be grave matter. It, has to, it actually has to be a mortal sin. Some folks are uh, kind of have some erroneous notions about it. They might think something is a mortal sin, but it actually is not in reality. So it actually does have to be grave matter. Number two, you have to commit that sin with full knowledge. You have to know that it's a mortal sin and, and you still choose to do it. And that kind of leads into the third point, full consent. Full consent. You have to have full freedom. If you're coerced or forced into a, a mortal sin, that, that's a different ballgame in terms of uh, the guilt that you impute. So, once again, grave matter, full knowledge, and full freedom or full consent. That's, that's, those are the three conditions that need to be met for you to be guilty of a mortal sin. Heaven forbid. We want to avoid that as far as possible. So that's, that's the link, that, that the Eucharist can actually wipe away our venial sins. And so Scott Hahn mentions uh, the writings of St. Justin Martyr. St. Justin Martyr uh, said this, and he was writing 
oh, in about the year 150 AD. And of course, this is from his famous dialogue with Trypho. Trypho was a Jewish person, and he and Justin had a spirited debate about the Messiah, about the Eucharist. It's one of the things they talked about. And St. Justin related the offering of flour, the flour offering of ancient Israel. And he kind of compares and contrasts that with the Eucharist. Uh, he says that the flower offering, quote, which was prescribed to be presented on behalf of those purified from leprosy, was a type of the bread of the Eucharist. Now, this idea of, of typology is very, very important in Catholic theology. And it's basically the concept of what a literary author might call foreshadowing. You know, if you read a mystery novel, if you read I don't know, my wife's been reading a lot of Stephen King novels lately. I, I, that's not my bag. I'm not into that. But a great writer like Stephen King might use the literary device of foreshadowing, using something in the story to tip you off to something that's going to happen later, something bigger. And so God kind of does that too, because God writes the world the way human authors write with words. He uses, but he, here's the thing, God uses actual people places, events, things, to foreshadow even greater people, places, things, events that he's going to pull off in the new covenant time, which we're kind of living in right now. We're living in the new covenant time, the age of the church. So, for example, Moses is a type of Jesus, right? Jesus is a new and greater Moses. He's much greater because he's God the Son. But just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai came down with the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes up the Mount of Beatitudes and comes down with what? The Ten Beatitudes. And yes, there are ten, not eight, as you might have been taught, but we'll get into that another time. There are five books of Moses, the Torah, in the Old Covenant. Well, in Matthew's Gospel, which presents Jesus as this new Moses, there are five major teaching blocks of material, one of which is the Sermon on the Mount, the five books of Jesus, as it were, in the Gospel. So it's very, very clear to a reader who's familiar with the Old Covenant what this is all about. Well, this is what St. Justin Martyr said to uh, his debate partner, uh, Trypho. He said, The flower offering of ancient Israel, which was prescribed to be presented on behalf of those purified from leprosy, was a type of the bread of the Eucharist. So this is a foreshadowing of the Eucharist goes on to say, the celebration of which our Lord Jesus Christ prescribed in remembrance of the suffering which he endured on behalf of those who are purified in soul from all iniquity, in order that we may at the same time thank God for delivering us from the evil. So this is, this is a great example of how just as these flower offerings in ancient Israel were able to purify uh, those who were offering the sacrifice in the same way. We celebrate the Eucharist, and that Eucharist can also uh, wipe away sin, iniquity from us. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Well, let's continue on with this. And so, the Eucharist is really, really... <laughs> It's everything that we could ever possibly want. Uh, Scott Hahn puts it this way. This is a really nice uh, quote from him from his book. He says, Our bodies long for food, our souls long for God, and this bread is both food and God. 
Thus it meets the needs of both the bodies and the souls of God's children. Uh, that's just a, a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? So we, we need food to survive, physical food, but we, we need much more than that. And perhaps you've had this experience. There are those who, who achieve every possible aim they ever could have sought at the human level. Uh, they have a beautiful place to live, a beautiful family, money in the bank, health, a nice car in the driveway, but they're still unhappy. Look at all the miserable celebrities <laughs> that are out there constantly in rehab. It's quite obvious that there there is a spiritual need that is not being fulfilled there. And I mentioned St. Augustine before. We all know, of course, that famous line of his from his Confessions, Book 1. It's probably the most famous line ever written outside of the Bible, religiously speaking, at least. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. How, how true that is. How true that is. So the Eucharist kind of fulfills both those things. I mean, it's not going to, it's it's not, a, it's not a meal that's going to, you know, you're still going to have to have lunch after mass, but, but it is food, but it is also God who, who makes himself bread for us. Uh, the bread becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Only the appearances of bread remain to be more exact. And we receive our Lord into our souls. And so that's what strengthens this, this charity, this love wipes away the venial sins, as the Catechism says. And th this is what enables us, by the way, to forgive others as well. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This, this is really what it means. When, when St. Peter, in one of his letters, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he says, you've got to become partakers of the divine nature. You've got to become what the early fathers called divinized. Now, this doesn't mean that we become gods or anything like that. And there have been some very, very strange theologies that have twisted and misused the writings of the early fathers of the church to, to promote this kind of ideology. Uh, Non-Christian groups like the Mormons, and, and I did a series on Mormonism uh, for the Faith Explained program, and I believe you'll find that in the archives on the Relevant Radio website. But in Mormon theology, Every Mormon male is progressively becoming a god on his own planet one day. Well, talk about upward mobility, my goodness. Uh, that's not what happens, though. That is an erroneous theology. We, we never become gods. We never become gods. But we can, as St. Peter says, become partakers of the divine nature. How does this happen? Well, this happens when God gives us his life, his grace, and for us Catholics, grace, that's what it means. It, it doesn't just mean unmerited favor. It doesn't just mean God giving us what we don't deserve. It means he gives us himself, his very life. And nowhere is that more true than in the Eucharist. We really do become partakers of the divine nature. And so, to forgive is divine. You probably heard that phrase, to err is human, to forgive is divine. The only way that we can forgive others when they trespass against us is to have God do it in and through us. Because we, we don't have the grace. We don't have enough holiness on our own to be able to pull that off. So th this is part of what, what makes that possible. God does not ask of us. He does not require of us anything that he doesn't give us the power to actually do. So as Han says in his book, when we receive the Eucharist, 
and also, of course, when we receive the sacrament of confession, this is how God takes out our sin from above, right? If you look at our life as kind of this war against sin, how does he take out our sin from above? Well, through the Eucharist. But also, as Han points out, we've got to take out sin from below, from below. And th this is where we partner with God. We, we participate with God in this. Forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so we've received the life of God. We've got to pass it on. We've received the life of God. We've got to do what's only possible for us to do if God is doing it through us. God is love. And as Hans says, quote, like God, we forgive not merely by forgetting, but by loving. It is the heat of God's love that melts the ice of our sin. And so it is the heat of our love that will bring about the forgiveness of those who trespass against us. End of quote. That, that's exactly right. Uh, we, we receive God's, God's very self in the Eucharist and in the other sacraments. Of course, in the other sacraments, we receive God's grace, God's life. But in the Eucharist, we receive God himself. And that, that love, that burning love of Christ, the heart of Christ in the Eucharist, enables us to love and to forgive our enemies. Wow. That's just a beautiful way of putting it. And my friend, Father Alexander Laschuk, a Ukrainian Catholic priest, in light of the, the, the incredibly hard ask of, of loving enemies in the Catholic life, it's the hardest command that God asks of us. He was reflecting on this in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And very soon after this happened, mere days after this happened, Forgiveness Sunday took place in Ukrainian Catholic churches. And as Father Alexander explained to his parishioners, well, what does this really mean? It means that loving your enemies, forgiving those who have hurt us, it means that if you, as a Ukrainian, were to see Vladimir Putin in heaven, you wouldn't say, what are you doing here? <laughs> you would say, wow, the grace of God is absolutely incredible. We need to pray for his conversion. We need to pray for all of our enemies uh, that they might turn to the Lord because no one, no one is beyond his reach. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Now, let's go now to the next petition in the Our Father. This is the sixth petition in the Our Father. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this could be translated this way. And in, in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew uh, has Jesus give the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, it puts it this way. Do not bring us to the time of trial. Do not bring us to the time of trial. Lead us not into temptation. Do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Rescue us from the evil one. So there's really two issues here that we've got to talk about. Number one, what is the time of trial? What, what does that mean? And then secondly, what is meant by, is it evil or is it the evil one? Deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one? We'll talk about those in their turn. So let's talk about the time of trial here for a minute. Uh, 
by the way, there there is a um, an ancient prayer of the rabbis that sounds an awful lot like this. And here's the prayer: Do not accustom me to transgression, and bring me not into sin or into iniquity or into temptation or into contempt. Now it sounds very much like this petition that Jesus brings up in the Our Father. And by the way, this makes perfect sense because Jesus, of course, is Jewish. He, he, he was called rabbi by his students, by his disciples. Was he a, a trained rabbi? No, <laughs> but he was pretty smart. He was God the Son, right? So he may not have had the rabbinic credentials per se, but he is the ultimate teacher. And so there's no problem with there being similar prayers. And we talked about that ancient Jewish prayer called the Kaddish, which which really is in essence like a mini version of the Our Father. And Jesus just kind of expands on this in the Our Father, in the Lord's Prayer. Well, that makes perfect sense because Jesus is Jewish. And I remember, I don't, I don't know if you've ever looked into what's called historical Jesus studies. But people are always trying to make some, scholars are always trying to make a distinction between what they call the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. In other words, they're, they're trying to say that the Christ of faith is some sort of creation of the church that doesn't have a whole lot to do with the Jesus of history. I, I would have some issues with that. But one of the criterion that they use, or that they used to use, in determining whether Jesus really said something or whether Jesus really did something is what they call the criterion of double dissimilarity. What, is, what does that mean? Okay, that's a mouthful. What, is, what does that mean? Well, they say, okay, if something Jesus said sounds too much like it comes from a Jewish background or it sounds too much like church teaching, then he probably didn't say it. And I think that doesn't make any sense at all because Jesus was Jewish and he founded the church. So, of course, his teaching is going to sound like Jewish teaching. And, of course, it's going to sound like the teaching of the church because he founded the church. And the church's teachings are based on the teachings of Jesus himself. So, that, that, that has never made any sense to me at all. You have to remember, people would not have thought, if Jesus was making an incredible departure from Jewish teaching people would not have thought that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah if he was radically different from what uh, Moses had taught, from what the prophets had taught, from the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. No, no, no. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so many did believe Jesus was the Messiah in his day, and even to this day, there are many, many conversions in the Jewish world they're discovering Jesus as Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach in Hebrew. Now, they, they don't view it as uh, discovering a new religion. They, they view it as fulfillment of their Jewish faith. It's, it's the Catholic Church is Judaism with the Messiah having come. And so they, they feel a great sense of fulfillment when they discover Yeshua HaMashiach. And so that was a great uh, parallel uh, prayer of the rabbis that, that does kind of sound similar to what Jesus is saying here. So this idea of the time of trial, lead us not into temptation, or do not bring us to the time of trial. The concept here is not, and I repeat, not that a follower of Jesus, a Catholic Christian, would never have any trial in their life, would never come into 
an experience like that. We, we know that that's not true. We know that that's not true. Jesus himself uh, had many, many trials and tribulations in his own life and ministry. And this is what's alluded to in the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read this. And this is right after that famous Hall of Fame passage, the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. And it says this, Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so these are great uh, words of Hebrews that reminds us of the fact that Jesus himself suffered a great deal. And don't forget, St. Paul did as well. Uh, So he he was someone who was obviously very close to Christ, uh, one of the greatest saints of all time, certainly the greatest evangelist of all time. Well, this is what he writes about his own experiences as a follower of Jesus. Did it make life uh, a lot easier for him, a lot more cushy for him? Far from it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he he kind of boasts of all his sufferings, uh, if you will. He says, I have had harder labor (laughs) than some of his opponents. I've been in prison more often. I've had worse beatings. I've been in frequent danger of death five times. I received from my fellow Jews the 40 lashes minus one. It was when he was preaching in the synagogues, trying to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. In my frequent journeys, I've been in danger from rivers and from bandits, in danger from my countrymen and from the Gentiles, in danger in the city and in the country, in danger on the sea and among false brothers, in labor and toil and often without sleep, in hunger and thirst and often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from these external trials, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is led into sin and I do not burn with grief? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is forever worthy of praise, knows that I am not lying. So, Paul's even boasting in his sufferings. So, this idea that a follower of Jesus would never endure any kind of trial in their life, that's not what this prayer means. That's not what this petition in the Lord's prayer means. So the idea is not that a follower of Jesus will never undergo trials, but the idea is that we will never be overcome by the trial, that God will be faithful to us, and as long as we're faithful to him and hold fast, we will not be overcome by this trial. So in the next episode of The Faith Explained, we're going to look at the question of, does God ever tempt his children? Okay, because the, the prayer says, lead us not into temptation. Is it possible that God could ever actually lead us into temptation? Some people say yes. I have some issues with that. <laughs> we'll talk about that in the next episode of the Our Father series here on The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. That's all the time we have for today. But if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. 
relevantradio.com. F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio. And I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless.